Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 21 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 26th of June. And Leon, what's on the slate for this week? Well, we're talking to uh, Samuel Johns. He's an RMIT alumnus. Yeah, he's an RMIT alumnus and he's working for TripAdvisor That's right. in Boston. That's right. So uh, uh, looking forward to talk to him. And then we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson all about superannuation. And very interesting that is too. It's, uh, it's a big issue in Australia. People seem to take it for granted, but there's a lot of things hanging on it. That's right. But anyway, let's first of all talk to Samuel Johns. We're talking to Samuel Johns, uh, who's in Boston, working for TripAdvisor, possibly the world's leading online uh, travel advice and uh, information sharing site. Samuel, how long have you been with TripAdvisor? Uh, I've been with TripAdvisor for two and a half years now, coming up on three years this November. What do you do there? Uh, I do uh, search engine optimization, uh, working on the, the SEO team, um, working to optimize TripAdvisor's site um, across a range of different search engines. Yeah, you're an RMIT alumnus um, and you took a course not in electronics but in entrepreneurship, I believe. Yeah, I, uh, I studied and, and majored in entrepreneurship, um, which is a, a Bachelor of Business course, but it, with a focus on entrepreneurial thinking and innovation, which... I took my uh, interest in innovation and entrepreneurial thinking in sort of the, the web technology space. So how did you end up in search engine optimization? So I actually initially started uh, in uh, search engine optimization through optimizing my dad's website um, or for his small business back when I was at RMIT actually in 2008 um, and I was just tinkering away trying to grow uh, grow web traffic but then when I when I joined Vistaprint another company based in Boston I just got curious uh, I didn't actually start on the on the SEO team there I started on the website product team and I started creating learning materials for for their customers or users on how to grow web traffic but then I got more curious about learning about it and so I actually reached out to the the director of SEO at, at Vistaprint, um, outside of my, um, I guess, guess this comes down to my entrepreneurial thinking, sort of uh, outside of my current role at Vistaprint, I was currently working on the product team and I just approached the, the director of SEO and said, how can I help your team? And without my boss knowing, and uh, he was like, oh, we have this project that might be suitable. And so I actually worked with him underground for probably like a month or two. And we actually created a project that was really successful. Um, and so I was I went back to my boss and said, oh, here's some of the stuff I've been doing on the side. And, and she was like, oh, this is really good. You can spend 30% of your time next quarter working with the, working with their team. And so that went from 30% to the next quarter, it was 50%. And then by the next quarter, they, they opened up a position for me to work on the SEO team at Vistaprint full time. And so that's how I, I got started in SEO and worked under a great guy and mentor, Parker Swift, who taught me sort of a lot of the, the knowledge that I have on SEO and was probably the core reason why TripAdvisor sort of was able, uh, while I was in a good position to, to join TripAdvisor, which is probably one of the world's leading SEO teams. Uh, tell me, Samuel, what are the main principles behind SEO? So core principles of SEO is just making sure initially that your site is findable and searchable um, by search engines. So architecture is, is good and search engines can find you, but also the main piece these days or just main piece from an SEO is making sure your user experience and are you providing a user with a relevant and suitable uh, result uh, 
for, for their queries. So um, search engines uh, want to make sure that they're sending users to a relevant and positive page, uh, answering the question that they're looking for from a search engine. So making sure that your content is really good quality and that you're targeting or you're providing the user with a great user experience is sort of two of the main aspects. You want to be searchable. You want search engines to be able to technically find you, but then also once the user lands there, is providing them with a great user experience. There's a, there's a report from Google at, uh, well, it was on the Google AdWords post, uh, blog uh, today, and it was talking about how the traffic or the search capability is now transferring across to mobile. Most people are doing their searches on mobile rather than from desktop. Does that affect SEO? It does. Uh, Google's recently come out with uh, with some updates or optimizations on uh, how they treat or the, how they want uh, mobile the mobile site experience to be to be optimized. And, uh, and then again, it comes down to great user experience. Google wants to be providing searches with a great user experience. So you want to make sure that your site is mobile mobile optimized as well as optimized for the desktop traffic. So the the normal standalone um, pages that you're used to optimizing, you we also there's a, a prominent focus on on mobile these days. When you're working uh, on your search engine optimization, is it a general thing, say for Google and Bing and all the other search engines, or do you have to be specific to each engine? Each each engine has has their own guidelines, search quality uh, best practices, uh, as you would say, and uh, you most of them are pretty similar, but some, there's some unique elements. But in general, most of them are attached targeted to very similar things depending on the, the the market that you're in also there's there's a whole range of different when you work at a, on a site like TripAdvisor with 46 different countries um, and domains that we have under management you have different search engines in China in Russia and, uh, and then also the Googles of the world and, and the, the Bings and Yahoos so Bing and Yahoo have been using the same search algorithm uh, for quite a while now with uh, Yahoo and Bing being in a partnership but uh, that those the types of relationships are always under under change, but yeah, in general, the the algorithms are somewhat similar, but there there are differences across uh, each of them. Obviously, uh, Google is the the sort of main player in the space uh, from a traffic or from a, a user uh, industry wide perspective. There's more users on Google, so there tends to be a little bit more focus there. But each of them have their own unique unique perspectives. Um, that you sort of need to look out for every now and then. So say I, I put into uh, Google coffee shops in Tashkent or something like that, there's a high likelihood that TripAdvisor will come up top of the heap. you then got to search again, don't you? Now, at what point does TripAdvisor's own search capabilities enter the equation? So the obviously uh, ideal from a, um, a user perspective if they are able to find exactly we're able to land them on a specific page that they're looking for from Google directly to a page that, that's ranking in Google but if they're if they're looking for something a bit more specific maybe they've, they've searched something that's a little bit more vague maybe at restaurants or uh, sort of cafes in uh, in the given town but then they may want to filter down or use use TripAdvisor's filters or search capabilities to, to narrow down their um, specific search and of course you're dealing with uh, what if you've got about a hundred million traveler reports uh, in your website? So yeah, there's uh, 
there's over um, or it's over 100 100 million plus reviews uh, uh, reviews and opinions uh, or we call them uh, traveler opinions because they're not just specifically reviews there's there's photos and comments and uh, forum posts and uh, there's a whole range of different content but there's a, a very large uh, yeah very large number of reviews and opinions that are uh, growing uh, every day um, yeah. so yeah now one of the things that interests me is you did uh, a degree with RMIT on entrepreneurship, uh, and now you're um, into search engine optimization as a, I guess, a technician. Where did you get your tech skills? I'm not. Uh, I've sort of spent time hacking at home myself, I guess, like building my own uh, WordPress uh, websites and stuff like that. And then uh, a lot of the technical skills that I have today have uh, have been learnt on the job. So a lot of the like the back end data and analytics work that I do is has been learnt from both my time at Vistaprint and also my time at, uh, at TripAdvisor from just yeah, enhancing my knowledge of uh, working with large data sets and working in tools like Google Analytics and also um, some of our own in-house uh, SEO tracking tools. I understand you, you kicked off your uh, your business life uh, in, in a golf club and wound up at Royal Melbourne. Uh, do you still play golf? I, I don't play golf uh, as much uh, anymore. I do sometimes recreationally, but uh, the more time actually I spend, I'm still heavily into, into sport. I spend a lot of my time these days actually in the sport of triathlon, I uh, yes compete in the. Uh, I recently competed in um, uh, Ironman New Zealand um, uh, in March seven. Just actually, whilst I was back in uh, back in Melbourne, back in March this year. And and so, where where to next for you? Uh, I think that there's. Uh, I think sky's the limit uh, in terms of the, well, there's lots of opportunities uh, out there. There's often uh, search is a, an ever growing space, and TripAdvisor is a, a thriving company, and they're actually offering me. Uh, providing me with with great opportunities and next next step for me is to uh, I've been learning a lot more about uh, mindfulness and being being aware of um, sort of my my daily health and wellness um, both as in my work life and also my personal life and it's an avenue and space that I, I want to explore more both in my leadership style so I'm, I'm working a lot on growing within the in the company of TripAdvisor to uh, enhance my leadership opportunities to to mentor and, and manage uh, junior staff but also expand my sort of impact across the team and from a from a longer term perspective I think there's just a really positive vibe here in the Boston environment so I'm still uh, in a very sort of as one of my mentors calls it calls it the soup like this uh, fertile soup of like uh, learning and uh, on the edge or on the cusp of new technology and innovation so I think I'll be in Boston for a little while a uh, little while longer uh, that's not uh, nothing set in stone obviously but uh, I think that um, connecting my passions for further down the road, I think connecting my passions for both technology and for sports and athletics, uh, as well as uh, mindfulness and wellness, will be something that I, I look to um, connect the dots on uh, at some point down the future. Does uh, mindfulness fit in with technology? Very much so. Uh, I think that there, these days there's a great use of use of technology to give you feedback on your daily state of mind and your um, state of wellness. So I think there's a lot of innovation happening there with the use and enhancement of, of technology, whether it's a tracking device or sort of even just having things of giving you feedback on how much time you're actually spending in front of a screen versus actually getting out, uh, doing daily activity and exercise. But also I think it also technology enables us to access 
great greater like uh, elements of knowledge particularly related to this podcast for example you can get more mindful and be more aware about things happening across the world with with podcasts that are being created by RMIT or podcasts that are being created by like wellness professionals in Boulder Colorado and so I think technology enables us to to learn a lot about about ourselves but also new ways of being mindful and new ways of doing things new approaches to stuff which helps you grow into into becoming the person that you ultimately want to become final question have you bought an apple watch because of the wellness uh, features in it so no i actually uh i uh, great question uh, i use a uh, uh, i'm actually very data orientated with my personal personal tracking i use a watch called uh, my basis peak which is a company the company's called basis and they're recently purchased by intel and i wear the watch because it has a little bit more in-depth technology or usability from uh, in comparison to the Apple Watch. The, it tracks the heart rate, body temperature, sweat rate, and then your daily steps. And so um, I can currently tell you that my heart rate's 73 beats per minute. And so it gives me a minute-by-minute reading of my, of my heart rate. And so it's very helpful from a, uh, how, good, how good a quality was my sleep last night what's your resting heart rate on a day-over-day basis to, to improve your sort of um, daily sort of understanding of how, you, how your health is doing. Uh, but I have uh, read a few reviews on the Apple Watch, and I think that from an app functionality and sort of flexibility from a developer perspective, I'm excited about where the Apple Watch is going to go or where it's going to get to. But currently for myself, I, the devil is in the details with the extra um, extra detail that comes from the hardware on the uh, my, basis, my basis watch versus the Apple Watch. My Apple Watch tells me my heart rate is 68 beats a minute, but I've been sitting down a long time. Yeah. So uh, you 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 already you already have the uh, the Apple Watch? Yes, I do. Yeah, nice. very, and and very nice it is too. It, Samuel, yeah. thank you very much for your time and your insights. We've enjoyed talking yeah. to you. No worries. Thanks very much, guys. Well, there you go. The young man from Melbourne, and there he is in Boston with a big future in IT in America. By That's the way, right. doing very well. And uh, now Sinclair and superannuation. Sinclair Davidson, the Abbott government has ruled out any changes to superannuation, but pressure is building on them to do something about it. It's, we're being told it's untenable at the moment. What's your view? Before I answer that, I think we need to start off by saying Australia's actually got a very good superannuation system whereby you've got provision made for people's retirement that is more or less privatised, not owned by the government, not controlled by government, and that's always a very, very good thing that we've actually got. Now, within that framework, the big kerfuffle is around the tax concessions that you have putting money into super. Now, part of this is because we actually have a privatized uh, uh, system. If the government controlled superannuation, nobody would be saying a word about it. So part of it is because you get tax concessions to put money into a private investment scheme. So that's the first thing we've got to bear in mind. The argument that we hear is that only the rich benefit from these tax concessions um, is definitionally true because we have a progressive income tax system. So if you have, if you're paying what 48, 49 percent with all the various levies of your income in taxation, if you then get taxed at a flat rate, obviously the gap between what you your marginal rate and the flat rate is going to be bigger if you're a high income earner. That's a definitional issue which I think a lot of people kind of overlook when they say, "Oh my God, all these rich people are getting tax concessions." Well, of course they are. That's how the system is actually designed. So a lot of what we hear is actually a feature and not a 
bug per se, which which, which people don't like that they, they don't want to hear. But but the but the view is it's just unfair. It's just uh, you know. Well, to the extent that you're only looking at superannuation, yes, it is unfair. To the extent that we've got to think about the tax system as a whole, um, it's, it's, it's not unfair in the grand scheme of things because the, the top 25% of income earners who are probably getting the lion's share of all these tax concessions, they pay about nearly 67, nearly 68% of all net income tax. So is, is it fair in isolation? Maybe not. Is it fair? when you look at the system as a whole, um, probably that is the case. So it's a case of swings and roundabouts when you're looking at the tax system. Should we look at it in isolation? No, not really. When we look at it in in total, it it suddenly starts looking very, very different. So it's a case of uh, uh, missing the the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees, as the case may be. Um, The the argument there that superannuation is, is... unsustainable. I, I, I don't really see that argument. I, I hear it all the time. I hear that it's um, over time, the amount of money in superannuation is going to grow. Yes, that's true. That's how it's supposed to work. And over time, the amount of tax concessions going to high income earners will rise as their incomes rise. That's actually bracket creep at work. It's, so in, in all the things that we talk about uh, that are problems for the tax system, it's working exactly the same way for superannuation. One, one of the issues with superannuation is that uh, a lot of people in super schemes won't have enough to support them in their super accounts. Yes. The, the government has talked about raising the rate through to 12%. That's been one proposal. What's your view? The, the issue that we have is that when superannuation was brought in for everybody in 1992, one of the, the really significant reformers of the Keating government was the idea that superannuation was going to displace the, 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 the pension system. And if you have a look at the latest intergenerational report, I think um, at the moment, 67% of, sorry, 70% of all retirees are somehow reliant on part pension or, or the whole pension. And that's going to drop to 67% by, by 2014. Everybody's saying, oh, goodness me, how's that? You know, that, that isn't really a benefit. The issue is really um, thinking about how much money you need to retire. And... People probably need less money than they actually think that they need because because it's a private system now. A lot of uh, a lot of organisations are out there selling superannuation products, and one of the incentives that they have is to make sure that people overprovide for for their uh, um, for their retirements. And uh, so I've even had these people come to my house where where they're they're actually trying to sell you a superannuation product because they want to earn commissions and all this sort of stuff. So I I think we if, if we're looking at the moment, we see the government is actually trying to deal with the commission side of things to sort of get away from organizations peddling these dodgy products, which I think we will start seeing a bit more sense coming to the superannuation debate. You probably don't need as much as you think, but you probably won't also be off the public purse forever because one of the things is if you are eligible for the part pension, you're also eligible for the age pension card, and uh, uh, that, that brings with it health benefits. Now, obviously, elderly want to access those health benefits because that's actually quite valuable. And one of the things the government has been talking about and did announce in the last budget is they want to decouple the age card from the pension scheme. And if they're able to do that, you will be in a situation whereby people will probably access the pension less. They will organize their affairs less to try and, and to so that they don't have to try and access the pension and the card at the same time. So I, I hear these stories that people won't have enough. Um, some people obviously won't, but 
but a lot of other people actually will. And and so we, 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 when we see those incentives changing, we will see the behaviour changing as well. So you don't think there's any need to increase uh, the pension contribution? Uh, certainly not to 12%. We're actually going to have some people who are going to be living better lives in retirement than they did when they were working, um, if, if it's as, as much as 12%. Uh, that's certainly not uh, um, a viable thing. The other thing that that's happened here in Australia is the idea that superannuation is the only legitimate way of, re- of, of saving money for your retirement, which, of course, it shouldn't be, and it isn't. But Canberra have got it into their heads that they want to be able to control people's lives and how they retire. And so they're, they're they're trying to push everything into super, whereas you should have a range of options. You should um, have money inside of super, outside of super, in small businesses, all these other things. When you focus everything on super, you're more or less actually putting all your nest eggs into one basket, which which I don't believe is necessarily good policy. So, Sinclair, some people suggest that the big bulk of superannuation money chasing shares is distorting the stock market within Australia. Is that valid, do you think? Uh, there's probably something to that argument, yes. When you talk to the people about uh, venture capital and what have you, they complain bitterly that they actually can't access money. So it, it's actually making us a bit more risk-averse than we actually should be and just you know, money-chasing existing uh, markets as opposed to going into, into, into the new market. And uh, the uh, Murray inquiry actually recommended that uh, changes that would stop self-managed super, and super funds from borrowing money to invest in property and shares, which they're doing now. Yes. The problem that I have with that is that borrowing money in order to invest in property and shares is actually not a bad idea, generally speaking. There does seem to be an institutional dislike of self-managed funds, which I, I don't share. I often think that People should be able to look after their own money if they really want to, bearing in mind that it is more risky. But of course, we, we have this, this this pension safety net under underpinning it all, which does probably lead to some moral hazard. So there probably is a moral hazard problem, but I don't know that it is as great as, as, as people like to argue when it comes to self-managed super funds. So uh, you would not see, you'd not recommend any changes to that system? I, I, I would actually like to see a lot less change and a lot less talk about change to the superannuation scheme because it, it does actually introduce a, a lot of uncertainty to people's minds about when they can retire, what they can do, how much money they will have in retirement. And I think all the speculation about changing to the system is probably doing more harm than any reforms would do any good. So I would actually leave well enough alone for a long, long time to see how it works out, bearing in mind this is a multi-generational reform and we've only had half a generation so far in, in seeing how it's going to work out. So I think we've actually got to give it a lot more time as opposed to changing the rules every few years. And because it's only been going since the 90s. Yes, it's only been going since the 90s, which is not actually a long time in the grand scheme of things. It's So far, it's more or less half of somebody's working life. And and I, I think we've actually got to take a deep breath and say, it's going to take a couple of working generations to see how this is going to pan out. And in the meantime, we, we've actually got to give the reform a good chance to succeed, given that we know that saving for your own retirement is a good idea, given that we know that state-sponsored saving schemes don't work as well as private saving schemes. This is a private saving scheme. It is a world first. It is something that we should be proud of. It is something that we should give an opportunity to succeed. And um, as I say, one of Keating's greatest uh, reforms of his entire tenure as treasurer and or prime minister, and it should succeed and will succeed, but we've got to stop tinkering at the margins. Right. And so if we have any changes, it should be only been about 25 to 50 years time indeed yes yes if then 
if then. It'll be too soon to tell, I suspect, at, uh, even at that late stage. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? I think it's, uh, it's going to be very, very problematic for the government. I can't actually see them moving on it. No, I, it'd be too dangerous. Too politically dangerous, they're not going to do it. And of course, as Sinclair points out, there's um, a lot of potholes in that road if they should ever take it. And now the news. Well, Gary, uh, first of all, the EU finance ministers have been hunkered down in Brussels trying to stave off uh, Greece exiting the euro and uh, Greece in its latest proposal to stave off default says Greece says it's going to impose a new tax on business and the wealthy and increase the VAT on certain items. It's also agreed with the IMF and Eurozone governments to have a targeted budget surplus of 1% of GDP 2% in 2016, 3% the year after. It foreshadows new pension savings and revenues worth 0.4% of GDP for this year. It's ruled out reductions in pensions, public sector wages and there will be no increase in VAT on electricity nor is there any reduction in Greece's debt level. Euron Disselborn, the chairman of the 19-nation Eurogroup, said the document was comprehensive and what he said was a, a basis to really restart the talks, but the creditors are not convinced and they've put Athens on a deadline to get its numbers right. And Greece needs to have a decision before June the 30th when its current bailout expires. It also faces a, uh, a $1.6 billion 1.6 billion euro loan repayment to the International Monetary Fund and sticking points remain including revenue from sales tax rates with the two sides still arguing about two, two sides still arguing about the rates of value-added tax on processed food and electricity the creditors want VAT savings in 2016 of 1% of GDP Greece is offering 0.74% of GDP there are also questions about whether spending cuts go deep enough the IMF sounded less optimistic on Monday its head Christine Lagarde described the proposals as still short of anything that we expected and now there are reports that Greece has rejected counter proposals from creditors calling for an even bigger VAT tax hikes and public spending cutbacks. Yeah, it's a mess. I mean, basically, whatever happens, Greece's indebtedness is going to increase and we'll have another crisis down the track. And they're not collecting income taxes or anything else like that. And Cyprus is in a terrible position because if he doesn't agree to some improvement with uh, the EU, he's not going to get, not going to get the money. If he does agree to the measures they want, then he's probably going to lose government. Well, there's going to be all sorts of internal party fighting on it so cyprus is in a difficult position and so the clock is ticking yeah it's a very loud tick Leon. that's right well they're saying there's light at the end of a tunnel but let me tell you it's a very very long tunnel it's a long tunnel and a dim light the thing is that greece is uh, even if it gives a lot of concessions to the EU uh, is not going to co- cover its debts. Yeah, yeah. On the plus side, Gary, despite the clouds of the Greek crisis, the Eurozone's economic recovery is well underway. Business output has grown at fastest rate in four years. The COPS Market Composite Purchasing Managers Index rose to 54.1 compared with 53.6 a month ago. And that's the highest reading in 49 months. That's four years. It's really coming back strongly. And market forecast growth of 0.4% for the region as a whole for the second quarter, with the economy set to grow by 2% for this year. But much of this depends on the negotiations with Greece. Yeah, and they ain't going too well, as we've already said. Now, interesting stuff coming out of Australia. There was government release a green paper with radical reforms of Australia's federation, and it might see Australians paying different levels of income tax depending on where they live. And one option canvassed in this government discussion paper is to make room in the income tax base by letting the states raise their own 
own tax or share the income tax revenue collected by the Commonwealth, and federal income tax would be reduced. And other options contained in the Green Paper include the politically contentious proposal of expanding the GST, which is, of course, the money that goes to the states, and also flags changing the way GST is carved up with the states and territories, with one proposal that would see them getting GST revenue based on their population, with a top-up given to smaller states. Yeah, it's a difficult point, anything to do with GST, but I think we're going to have to, well, we will see an increase in it, even if it's just small, because the GST we're paying, what, 10%, is way below where you've got got it in Europe. Well, the bottom the bottom line, though, is that the states are spending way over more money than what's coming in, and so that has to be sorted out. You mean we've got Greek states? <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, all of this is going to be thrashed out at a summit with the premiers next month, and the government will release a white paper by the end of the year. Now, what's interesting, another interesting piece of news, was that the Productivity Commission has slammed the free trade agreements, including the one just signed with China, calling it dangerous, and it's attacked the secrecy which was, which are negotiated. And in a special chapter in its annual trade assistance review for 2013-14, the Productivity Commission said giving preferential treatment for some countries adds to the red tape burden compliance costs on Australian foreign and businesses because of foreign country, uh, country of origin rules. It says there's nothing in place to monitor the outcome of these agreements once they come into place. And also questions the TPP for which Barack Obama has just received fast track authority to expedite in the US. Yeah, and one of the problems in the free trade agreement with the Americans is that it, uh, in certain respects, puts American laws uh, on top of Australia. Well, yes, yes. I mean, look, uh, look and this attack from the Productivity Commission coincides with an opinion poll by UMR research, which found that 90% of people in marginal seats across four states strongly oppose key aspects of the free trade agreement with China. And these included provisions that allow the Chinese to bring in Chinese workers for infrastructure valued at $150 million or more without advertising jobs locally and being able to sue Australian governments for policy changes that adversely affect their interests. Uh, a bit like the, uh, wasn't formally in a trade agreement, but when Germany was re- rebuilding its automotive industry, thousands of Turkish workers came in there uh, uh, and that's led to, unfortunately, led to a lot of problems in places like Stuttgart. That's right. What's interesting, too, is that there was a report from PricewaterhouseCoopers during the week saying that the patchy and uneven recovery has left more than one third of Australia in recession. And the problem, according to PwC, is that most of Australia's wealth is being generated by a handful of locations, and that's shrinking. And they found that 20% of national income is being generated by 10 locations, about 0.5% of Australia's landmass, principally the CBDs of Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, and the Pil- in the northwest, producing Australia's iron ore. Now, they say the economy expanded by 46% in real terms over the last 14 years, but that was driven by Melbourne CBD surging by 76%, Brisbane gaining 72%, and Sydney by 37%. And the rest of the country has been doing it tough, particularly in locations like Nanango in Queensland and Victoria's Latrobe Valley, a district of Churchill, where there are major coal-fired power plants. And the result, they say, 35% of locations around the country are now effectively in recession, and that trend is likely to worsen because the mining boom is slowing down and less income is coming in from mineral exports. Now, the uh, Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union, the CMFMEU, is going to pay $3.55 million to Grocon in a settlement over the protracted and bitter Meyer Emporium dispute. And this payout is lower than the $10.5 million sought by Grocon, but it's a big setback for the union, which is already under massive pressure and facing big legal bills in its dealings with the Royal Commission in Trade Union Governance and Corruption. And Grocon's lawyers signed the settlement on Sunday afternoon, and the 
Royal Commission last year heard evidence that the union had imposed a black ban on Boral to stop it supplying building material to Grocon, and the dispute came to a head in 2012 when there were violent clashes with police in Melbourne CBD at the union's unlawful blockade of Grocon's large Meyer Emporium worksite in Lonsdale Street. Yeah, CFMEU thinks that uh, the Australian law doesn't apply to it. Well, CFMEU just overstretched its hand there. Yeah, it reminds me of the old uh, Dockers um, union in uh, way back in the 50s. That's, they just went too far. Now, Aldi, interesting news. I mean, competitors Woolworths and Metcash are in turmoil. So Aldi is planned to expand nationally and set up operations in South Australia and Western Australia. And it plans to open 20 stores in South Australia in early 2016 and in Western Australia in the second half of next year. And it's already contacted food and grocery suppliers, telling them that Aldi's $70 million distribution centre in Regency Park, Adelaide, will be in a position to start receiving goods from February. Now, Gary, since coming here in 2001, Aldi has already secured an 11% market share on the East Coast, and it's heard the major's business models. It forced them to discount even further. Consequently, the relationship between suppliers and Woolies and Coles has, seems to have tanked, I mean, has, has been acrimonious in many respects, while Aldi seems to be managing that relationship much better. It's not good for Coles and Woolies, but the one that's going to be hurt the most is going to be IGA. IGA is the meat and the sandwich, isn't it? Metcash already got problems. They've, they've got huge problems, and uh, I'm predicting their market share is going to go down to about 4%. Given the uh, demographic for IGA, if if it should close, uh, then most of those customers will go to Aldi, I would guess. Probably. Now, financial services firm IWF has hired accounting firm PwC to carry out an independent review of its operations amid claims of misconduct by some of its staff. And the move comes days after the media reported IWF previously investigated conduct within its business, including allegations of insider trading and cheating on training exams, but failed to notify the corporate regulator. Now, IWF shares suffered their biggest fall since 2009 and they've fallen by as much as 21%. I mean, they were up above $10. They're now around $9. And, you know, there's some very, very ominous allegations being made about the direction. Well, it couldn't come at a worse time for IWF. You've you've had all sorts of allegations uh, now about Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Bank, and Macquarie Group. Yeah. And there was a Senate inquiry last year into that whole thing that uh, recommended we have a Royal Commission. So it just couldn't come at a worse time. Well, you know, and it's out in the open now, so I'll have to see. But it'll be a long investigation. Now, the Australian real estate market is in the grip of the biggest housing bubble in the country's history, and Melbourne will be at the epicentre of an historic bloodbath when it bursts, according to Hutu housing economists Lindsay Davis and Philip Seuss. And they've written books on the overheated housing markets, and they've berated the housing industry and politicians that refuse to acknowledge the existence of a bubble. And in a blunt submission to the upcoming parliamentary inquiry into home ownership, they claim there's actually an oversupply of housing, just as it was in the US before the market collapse, that precipitated the global financial crisis. And the biggest oversupply, they say, is in Melbourne, where there's been a frenzy of inner city apartment building, and they forecast the total available homes in Victoria outstripped demand by 123,000. And New South Wales has a surplus of more than 40,000. In the cent- in the CBD of uh, Melbourne, uh, I think that's demonstrably true. Well, there was a report this week that uh, people were, uh, something like one in four properties was losing money when they were being sold. Yeah, and a lot of it was is so-called student accommodation where it's about the size of a pigeon box. And meanwhile, these fears of a housing bubble are likely to resurface with the average price of the average weighted price for residential property across Australia's capital city rising by 1.6% over the three months to March. Over the year, house prices in capital cities increased by 6.9%. In Sydney, house price prices rose by 3.1% in the March quarter, and they've surged by 13.1% over the year. Melbourne house prices have, have 
lifted for a 4.7% over the year. Now, Treasury Secretary John Fraser recently told the Parliamentary Committee there was unequivocally a housing bubble in Sydney, and RBA Governor Glenn Stevens remarked that the house prices in some pockets of the market were crazy. In short, it's pretty dangerous. And so that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. Excellent. And we'll be back next week. That's right. Next week, we've got a great interview with Ben Allen. Ben Allen, the movie maker in Sydney. It'd be terrific. In the meantime, you can catch us on Twitter at Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.